0: Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who find it our delight to give praise to the God who made us and has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. We find that coming from the depth of our souls is that sense of, of dependence, that sense of, of, of reliance upon a God who has flung into the, this universe into existence and then by his grace has called dead men spiritually to become alive spiritually, and then has wooed us and drawn us into this household of faith where we all lay claim to the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we do indeed give praise to you. And ask that you might be pleased in what you see happening among us this morning. We understand, oh God, that we're the performers. That there is an audience of one in heaven. That is looking in to see how the, the hearts and souls of men and women will respond to the, the sung word and the prayed word and the preached word. Oh, God, might we all leave here today with a greater sense of devotion, consecration to the God to whom we owe so much. Our Father, we continue to pray for our nation as she struggles in so many ways. Once the economy starts to do well, everybody thinks that all is well, when in fact there, is, there are such issues of morality among us. There are such global issues that still exist, and so we pray, oh God, that you would give wisdom to our president, that you would give wisdom to those who make decisions in Washington, but oh God, while they're making their decisions, might the church of Jesus Christ rise up with such a conviction to broadcast the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Father, We commit ourselves to that. Gracie Van wants to be a small part of that. Would you allow that? Would you allow us, oh God, through our our giving and our going and our proclaiming, to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Lord, thank you for the privilege that is ours now to give away something that's precious to us. It is a statement of faith that prompts us to give. We want you to know, O oh God, through our giving, that we trust you and that we we believe that you have given us the ability to make wealth. And in response to those two truths, O oh God, we give and we do so gladly. We commit ourselves to the upbuilding and expansion of the kingdom of Christ through all that we do, including our giving. We pray, of course. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles now with me and open them to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. And you follow in your copies as I read to you, beginning at verse 9 through verse 20. You follow as I read. Isaiah chapter 44 at verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms, even so. He is hungry, and his strength fails, he drinks no water in his faints. The craftsman stretches out his rule, he marks one out with chalk, He fashions it with a plane, he marks it out with a compass, and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself, and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he shall take some of it and warm himself." Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You know, this is a story that I just read you. Actually, it's not a story per se. It's just a, a prophetic a sermon on the part of Isaiah, it's fascinating to me for for several reasons. First of all, I don't know whether you heard it. I tried to read it like this, but I don't know whether you heard the the sarcasm uh, that is contained in the voice of the prophet when he says, "What, what is going on? I mean, you cut down a tree and you take half of it and you use it to warm yourself and a little of it you use to bake your meat. And then the rest of it, you fashion it into a god and you worship How stupid is that? That's the the tone of the prophet Isaiah as he he writes this. And then this um, this, the irrationality of of all of it. In verses 11 and 12, you know, they're not even ashamed. The guys that make it are mere men. It's not like they dropped out of heaven. In fact, they fashion it so much so that they get hungry and they get thirsty. They're just men just like you and me making the things. It's, it's downright insanity to do what you're doing. And then, of course, there's this pathos, uh, this, uh, oh, the tragedy, I guess, of, of, of how often it mentions, um, you, you ought to be ashamed and this, this, uh, this statement about, um, ashes. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. And then he, he doesn't have enough information or knowledge to, to say, hey, i got a lie in my right hand. It's tragic, ladies and gentlemen, what the prophet is describing. But for me, the most fascinating feature of the whole story is found really in verses 1, 2, and 3, which I didn't read. Gang, this prophetic statement is addressed To God's people. Look at it. Verse 1. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, uh, whom I have chosen. I will pour my... On and on and on. It, It is very little question, gang, that this statement, so full of sarcasm, so full of irony, so full of tragedy, so full of insanity... Is addressed to us. Us. This this story guys about the irrationality and the insanity and the pathos of 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 having an idol. It's addressed to us. It is us who is supposed to benefit from this story about insanity. You know, guys, there's really no easy way to say this. So, one of the, one of the reasons that midlife, and I think you remember, this is our last of the six episodes in this midlife series that I've doing. But one of the reasons that midlife tends to be so difficult on us is that it's during this period in our lives that we come face to face with our idols. One of the reasons that, that midlife seems to be so traumatic for so many of us is because what what is... Happening is that we're coming face to face with idols in our lives. But it's not just that we come to the place, oh my goodness, we've sinned because we've done this. That's bad enough. But we are also struck with the realization that some of the things that we have been counting on to bring us happiness and contentment and meaning and fulfillment... They didn't, because they couldn't. And we have fed on ashes. Guys, is it, is it conceivable, is it possible that Christians, people like us, is it, is it conceivable that we have fed on ashes? Is it possible to be in a place where, where we don't even know that there is in our right hands a lie? Apparently so. What we did, guys, is that we took good things. Things like family and career. We took good things and we turned them into ultimate things. We turned them into ruling things. And because we did, they rose up to bite us. You know, our desire for a good thing became a bad thing. When it became a ruling thing, uh, it, it became a, a God substitute for us. In, in some instances, you know, we got what we longed for. I mean, uh, we wanted a successful career and we got one. Only to wake up in the middle of midlife so often to discover that there, there is still a huge vacuum. We got what we thought would fill up the vacuum, and then we got it only to discover it couldn't do it. And it didn't do it because it couldn't do it. And we realized that we've fed on ashes. And then in other instances, we didn't get what we wanted. We, um, what, what we longed for was an ideal marriage or the, uh, you know, the, the perfect model family. And what we've got now is the pieces of our shattered dreams. We've got a handful of ashes. You know, guys, it's bad enough to know that we sinned. <laughs> but um, in this case, there's more than just that. We're left with a handful of ashes. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to say this eloquently, I'm sure. But there are no ways to say it Happily. We often discover, I think, in midlife, that we have spent years serving things that are just idols. And they, um, as they always will, they failed us. So here we are, holding on to a handful of ashes. What we've done is that we use God as a means to our end. We, what we really wanted was this. And so we said, okay, God, we want you to produce that. And so we'll do all the little Christian, nice, religious things we're supposed to do if you'll give us that. And then we got that only to discover it did not satisfy. It did not satisfy because it could not satisfy. And so we're left with a handful of ashes. Gang, a midlife crisis in its most basic form is not an event crisis. It's not an aging crisis. It's a crisis of the heart. Midlife exposes what we really been living for, where we've really sought to find our meaning and our purpose and our identity. We find out in midlife what we've really been living for. And when um, those things get taken from us, or maybe not that they may, maybe not get taken from us, but we finally realize that they they haven't satisfied, we tend to become angry and and fearful and bitter and disillusioned and depressed and and we experience a midlife crisis. You know, guys, in ways that. We really weren't aware of. We really didn't even know it was going on. Sin has reduced us all to fools. Because we've asked someone or something to do for us what only God could do for us. And and it's only after we've gotten a little age on us that we begin to see that. You know, I, I started this series with a quote from Tom Stoppard. And Tom said, I think it's a very high price to pay for maturity, that is, age. Age is a very high price to pay for maturity. It is, isn't it? But it's once we've got a little age on us that we look back and say, you mean that that's what I've really been living for? Only to discover it didn't satisfy me so Midlife begins its assault on all of my little sandcastles, and as I watch them being washed away, here's what I'm left with. Okay, God, what idols do you have your finger on that need to be destroyed? Guys, I'll tell you a little story. Um, um, I was recently, not too long ago, I was sought by a man for some counsel. Imagine that but um by the way this man doesn't go to this church so everybody can relax but um i i met him uh, for lunch one day and he laid out his life he was very concerned about his wife his wife was in a very significant depression he described and and um the longer he talked um he too was in a significant depression and this is a guy's a good guy got a great family has been a model in his family all these years and and the family is kind of dispersed now. You know, they're all kind of gone. He's, he's younger than I am, but his family's pretty much kind of gone now. And, and, um, and he, he, he and his wife are just overcome. And I don't know how this came about, but I asked him this question. I said, well, tell me, what do you and your wife do at night? And he said, well, she folds clothes and talks on the phone and I watch a lot of television. In my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, that's a, that's a man that's holding on to a handful of ashes. M- maybe the same kind of ashes that you're holding on to. Because as we watch the sandcastles get eroded away from us, guys, the question that we've got a bit, that, that confronts us is, okay, what have I been living my life for? Now, if, if that's where you are or where you don't want to get, I want to recommend six things. A kind of a formula. I hate formulas because there's no quick and easy step one, step two, step three. But I want to suggest six things that will maybe help us avoid or handle the, the, the realization that, we, that we're holding on to ashes. Guys, six quick things. First. There's a couple of realizations that you that you got to get square, guys. A couple of things. First of all, uh, midlife produces nothing. It only reveals things. It doesn't produce anything. Dur- during midlife, your heart doesn't radically change. Midlife simply exposes patterns of false and unbiblical thinking and behaving, That we have carried around with us for years. Guys, midlife is is prompted because we struggle uh, with the emptiness of our own God replacements. We've got all these substitute gods and they all fail us and they always will. We're not satisfied because they can't satisfy. And so... That's the thing that's being exposed. Midlife is the time when our crops come in. And as we harvest the crops, what we learn is something about the seeds that we sowed years ago. Midlife doesn't produce that. Midlife simply exposes that. Midlife exposes the kind of seeds that we sowed years ago, and now the crops have come in. So it's not midlife that's the enemy, guys. Midlife produces nothing. It only exposes. It only reveals. That's the first thing. Second thing. Now, guys, this is going to come as a shock to many systems. (laughs) But listen to this. God is willing to sacrifice what is important to us in order to reclaim our hearts. Because He is jealous for our worship. And He will do what it takes to get that worship. He is willing to squash our dreams and and let the air out of all of our hopes. He is willing to, to let what we have craved slip through our fingers. Why? Because we're precious to Him. And He will not share us with another. And so our Heavenly Father, because He loves His people and wants what's best for them, will orchestrate a set of circumstances that will force us to deal with all of those synthetic loves, those synthetic things that cannot satisfy. It is is almost the violence of God unleashed upon His people. How could a God of love do this? I mean, where is God in all this emptiness that I'm experiencing? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen... It is God's faithfulness to us that is on display in the midst of all that difficulty. It's not his judgment. It's a jealous God who is fighting for your heart. He is not willing to sit idly by and watch us give our hearts to something that cannot satisfy. And so he orchestrates a set of circumstances. To expose all of those God substitutes, which can do nothing but leave us empty. You need to know that. You need to know that God is willing to do that because he is jealous for the love of his people. Thirdly, the right response to this crisis is not a new hairdo or cosmetic surgery although some of us could really profit by such a thing, um, the, 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 the right response is not to go get a new job or a new woman or man. The solution is to be found in re-enthronement. Guys, this is not a time for panic or, or hair transplants. It's a time for a return. It's a time for revival. It's a time of rescue. Rescue? Yes. Yes. The grace of rescue. Rescue from idols, from materialism, from ourselves that simply will not because they cannot satisfy us. Am I the only one that did that, that had to walk through that? Am I the only one that lives so many years of his life with trying to get something wrenched, something out of God's hands that couldn't satisfy? Am I the only one? I don't think so. Guys, our struggle with aging is not so much a struggle with deteriorating eyesight and other things. It's the struggle between idolatry and grace. The lover of our souls is you using midlife to expose things that are false and deliver us from, from God's substitutes and draw us and woo us to himself. So what we need to ask for, what we need what we want is for God to restore our first love. What we want is for God to to make what once was a matter of our hearts, but for whatever reasons to slipped in some kind of religious routine. We're asking him to make that which was once a matter of our hearts. To make it a matter of our hearts again. We ask him to smash those things that have demanded our worship and to retake his rightful place. The issue, the response, guys, is not to go get a new hair color. The response is reenthronement. That's where we've got to take this thing. Fourth, we learn, and as hard as it might be, guys, and how much faith it might require, we learn to thank God for the grace of disappointment. My friends, if God is the God of grace that we say He is and sing He is, He is also the author of our disappointments. And those disappointments are the very things that He is using to draw us nearer to Himself. You know, we sing this song, Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side." Well, that's what He's doing. That's the very thing that he's doing. And he's using these disappointments so we learn to thank him. These struggles that we're in are struggles of grace, my brother and sister in Christ. They're struggles of grace. And in the midst of them, we're being drawn closer to this God. We are, he is turning a matter of our hearts back into a matter of our hearts again. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Fifth, guys, you you must adjust your interpretive grid. (laughs) I want to show you this. uh, If you've got got a minute, uh, if you've got your Bible still open, if you can find Proverbs real quick, I want to show you a very famous couple of verses in Proverbs. I'm saying number five, we adjust our interpretive grid. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here's the famous part. Of Proverbs chapter four, it says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. That's the famous verse, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Boy, we know that, don't we? Ain't that the truth? This is where the issues of life come from right here, bubba. Right, oh, yes, sir. So guard it. Guard it well. Uh, you know, protect that, protect that spring of life. Do everything that you can. Okay. How? How do I do that? How do I keep my heart with all diligence? Guys, let me explain. Um, our, our problem in, in, in handling and in our, uh, the difficulties that we experience, and our pain gets greater because of, because of our misinterpreting and, and misunderstanding what is going on, what is happening to us. Our crisis is really rooted in the way that we interpret our experiences. And we misinterpret so many ways. But let me give you an example. One of the ways that we misinterpret is because all of us have a uh, kind of a comfort and peace agenda. You know, personal peace and prosperity. That is, the things that we really want out of life is safety and success and painless living and pleasurable life, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So we view everything that happens to us through that grid of a desire for a pain-free life. Now, so tell me, if you've got that kind of agenda, what do you think disappointment is going to be to you? It's going to be the enemy. It's going to be the thing that we're supposed to avoid at all costs. Now, add to that agenda the neglect of our souls. God, some of us take our souls and put them on the shelf all summer long. And then disappointment comes. And we are utterly overwhelmed. Because we've got a wrong agenda. We've got a wrong interpretive grid. And we have neglected our souls. So, go back to Proverbs with me now. Keep your heart with all diligence. How do you do that? Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life. Do you know what Solomon is suggesting? He's suggesting that we engage in the blessed discipline of gospel reminder. That is, look what he says. He says, uh, don't let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart for their life. Guys, when I say to you that you must adjust your interpretive grid, the way that you adjust your interpretive grid is that you engage in the discipline of reminder. You keep things in front of your eyes. You keep them before you. You, you, uh, You sing them. You study them. You meditate on them. You memorize them. You talk about them with friends. Folks, I have to fight for my soul by reminding myself of things that are true. That's how I keep my heart. We, we, guys, is that not what God told Israel to do in Deuteronomy 6? You know, talk about them in the daytime, talk about him in the nighttime, put them on your head, put them on your wrist, put them on the doorpost, put it everywhere. Guys, Calligraphy it, cross-stitch it, I don't care where you put it, but engage in this blessed discipline of reminder. That's the thing that adjusts an interpretive grid. And my friends, you neglect those remindings that should come daily, frequently, and then difficulty will overwhelm you. Because you've got the wrong grid through which you're viewing all of that happens to you. We've got to keep our souls, guys. How do you do that? By the blessed discipline of reminder. Frequent, frequent, frequent reminder. Sing it, pray it, meditate it, study it, cross-stitch it, calligraphy it, put it everywhere. But remind your heart that out of it flows the issues of life. And the great guardian of our hearts are the truths of which we remind ourselves. And then finally, number six. Guys, here's my call to you. Refuse to remain in this pool of your own regrets, your trough of disappointments. Choose with me to get out. It's time to sow a new crop, guys. Let's get on with it. In, in, in view of the refreshing benefits of the finished work of Christ for us, let's get on with it. Enjoying all of that finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ for his people, let's get on with it. You know, I read somebody say the other day, if you're digging in a hole and you realize that you're not getting anywhere by digging in that hole, then don't dig any deeper in that hole. Go do something else. Gang. Midlife is a time for us to go do something else. It's a time for us to plant a new crop. Guys, I can assure you this faithful God of ours will force us to see the truth. Consequently, regret is inevitable. But it's not terminal. Regret is the beginning of a new crop. You know, some of what we've done and who we've we've become, it's hard to face. It's hard to realize that I used God as a means for my end. That's not pretty. And yet this message that we are privileged to preach and hold and believe is a gospel that is designed for the needy and for the weak and for the foolish. It's designed for us. I'm finished. All I want to do now is read you 10 or 12 sentences from a book by Paul Tripp. And I I tell you, this is is a wonderful, in my opinion, I don't know that you'll enjoy it, but this is the summary of the whole six weeks. I could have read this and saved you all this, but um, here it is. What is midlife about? Yes, it is about painful regrets, crushing disappointments, and physical aging. It's about decisions, words, and actions you would like to take back. Furthermore, it is about dreams that seem so good, but that now seem like they will never come to be. It is about the loss of youth and the dread of old age. It is about these things, but it is about so much more. Midlife is about the glorious riches of God's grace that call me in my lostness to find something better. It is about learning in my weakness to find the inner strength that is mine because the spirit of power lives inside me. Midlife is not a time for weakening faith, but a time of trial that is designed to leave my faith in Christ stronger than it has ever been. It is a time when I really begin to understand that no glory, relationships, career, health, and physical beauty or material material ease, It is a time where I begin to realize that no glory, no glory can compete with the glory of being loved by Christ. Midlife is more than a time of assessment. It is a time of refinement where the character of God's fullness dwells more and more in me. You know, guys, this one life that we've got is supposed to be it's supposed to be lived for the glory of God. It's not about us, is it? And for many of us, we found this out in midlife. And so we've determined that the second 40 are going to be better than the first 40. Would you like to join us? Our Father, I do pray that you will rally your people to get out of their regrets, out of their disappointments, out of their bitternesses, they will shake free from that handful of ashes that we held on for way too long and discover the grand glory of being loved by Christ that there is no glory there is no glory like being loved by Jesus and i pray o oh god that we'll walk out of here with a determination to live the rest of our days a life such that you will get glory. Everything, family, career, marriage, it all is designed, O oh God, not to be a substitute God. It's to be the arenas, the venues in which we give glory to God. Do that, Father, for the sake of Christ Jesus the Lord. In whose name we pray.